I want to take a moment, and um, I'm going to do something here that is going to be super uncomfortable for all of us, but we're going to do it nonetheless. We're going to spend two minutes in silence, starting right now. Well, congratulations. You all, you all succeeded. For some of you, that probably was pretty uncomfortable. And uh, the reason why that's uncomfortable is because we just don't do that very often, where we are intentionally silent. We don't do that very often as individuals, and then we don't do that very often as a community. Now, there are three things that I'm super passionate about, and as I've pondered, and I do, trust me, I think and ponder about things related to this church all the time. I pray for you guys all the time. And there are three things that that um, if, if we get to the, uh, once we get to the end of our relationship together, which don't worry, you know, down the line, that there will be three things that you could say that were important to me than that I try to make important in your lives as well. One is that uh, Jesus is the only way, the truth and the life. If that, could, if that could be my lasting legacy, then that's, that's all I need. Beyond that, 
Beyond that, I, I hope that, that you will have experienced and, and heard from me many times that a life that is lived with an awareness of one's limitation compared to the all-surpassing ability and power of God is a life lived to its fullness. That is a whole life. That is a life that is broken and vulnerable because you're aware of your vast limitations in comparison to your desperate need for an all-surpassing powerful God. I hope I, can make, I hope I made that clear and will continue to do so in the years to come. The third thing is that you need to rest. If I can get down with my time here at North Haven, whenever that is, and I have helped create a culture and an awareness in your life that that's a crucial component of also living a full and rich life as an individual, as a believer, and as a church, I'll feel pretty good about that. But I have to admit, I mentioned this last week, This was not a reality for me. So has anybody taken uh, the Enneagram? Anybody heard of that? Okay. So an Enneagram, the Enneagram, it's, it's one of many. It's actually a very, very thorough and wonderful means of looking at yourself. If I could describe in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way what the Enneagram is, and Alyssa can attest to this as well, it's basically something that reveals how um, horrible of a person you can be, I guess. You know? <laughs> but it, it, is, it, is, it is a process of awareness, which is often very necessary. But if, if you did the Enneagram, you'd find something about yourself. I've done that, and, and I am a number three, and that'll make sense to you if you actually do it, which means I'm an achiever, which means that there are things embedded within me, things from my past, my personality, my experiences, that, me, that is, things I've done, things that have been done to me uh, that have caused me to believe intuitively that um, I can and should achieve. And largely because I want to be recognized because of that achievement. And I want to be the hero. And being the oldest of four boys, being the oldest of four boys, and then being the oldest of four boys in a family where uh, my parents' marriage ended in a rather hurtful and disastrous way, then carrying the burden of that, and as the oldest, then feeling like I needed to be the hero in my family. You can imagine then that tendency that I described to you was exacerbated in a lot of unhealthy ways. But that has manifested itself in my life for years and years and years in that I feel like in order for me to feel of any sort of worth that I got to do more. And I got to be more. Often at the sacrifice of myself. I mean, you'd only, you would need to look no further than the fact that, that somebody who graduated from high school barely, me, that's, I'm talking about me, by the way. Oh, okay. And 
and John, apparently. <clears throat> but somebody who barely graduated high school, I have perpetually been in school since then. Literally. I have not had a year where I haven't been a postgraduate, and that's not because I have 10 degrees. That would make sense. It's because I've taken my good old time. But I want to achieve. I want to achieve. And so I bring things into my life. And so it was only a year and a half ago, I took a class in seminary, and it was led, uh, not in seminary, as I was actually, uh, I was in the second year, first year, first and a half year of my doctorate degree here. And I took this, this uh, class with Dr. Frank Green. Now, if you met Dr. Frank Green, you would think that he came out of the hills in West Virginia. He is, he, he is unkept <laughs> um, and very cretankerous but full of wisdom. And that was before COVID, and so we had an intensive. We had a full week together, um, you know, nine hours a day, and uh, he spoke so much truth into my life. And it was actually right before I started here. And I'm going to admit something to you all. As excited as I was to be able to come here, I was probably equally, if not more, scared to death of it. Not because of any of you. Oh, maybe some of you. I'm just kidding. I was scared to death. I'd never been a senior pastor before. I don't know what I was getting myself into. But as we were doing this class, it was all about how it is that we can, that we can under the guise of Christ, under the guise of God's word, we can live lives that have boundaries, limitations, where we can, we can do that. So this is when, when I realized something, because I had been preaching over and over again that the greatest commandment is two in one. I love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and then love your neighbor as yourself. I've been saying that time and time again. And then I realized, no, it's three. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I had forgotten that whole third part of it. I wasn't taking care of myself. And my eyes were open in that moment. And it completely revolutionized me. And it was, I'm so thankful for that experience because I entered into this arena with the determination to resist the throne. I get it. The tendency of churches all across the nation, and this has been this way for decades and decades and decades, is that the pastor... The pastor often, because they're not intentionally resisting the throne, sits on the throne and holds themselves at a higher regard. And then understandably, the congregation instinctively, traditionally, also puts the pastor on the throne as well. And so I came in here with the determination to resist it. 
I wanted to be a perpetuator of truth. I wanted to be a constant to all of you. I wanted to be somebody who was dependable, somebody who, who gave you respect and empathy and love and patience, but also was okay with the idea that I'm not going to be able to do all things, to be okay with the, the fact that I need to say no. And so a year and a half ago, as I started here, I began for the very first time in my life, at 44 years of age, well, I wasn't 44 at the time, but at that time in my life, to start observing the Sabbath. That was to take 24 hours, and I made the decision initially myself. I was going to take 24 hours where I was going to set everything else aside, I was going to turn off my phone. I wasn't going to be available. I wasn't going to do any work, so I wasn't going to do any work for, for things here. I wasn't going to do any schoolwork. I wasn't going to do any chores. Gentlemen, can I get an amen? And it was Revolutionary. Revolutionary. So my, my, my day off, I have, I have all day Friday and then half a day Saturday. That's always been my, my kind of routine for 17 years. And so I decided I'm going to take 24 hours on Friday. And so that's what I did. Started that a year and a half ago. I explained to my staff, you can talk to any one of them. I said, I am not going to be available on Fridays. Call Don. <laughs> and I got to tell you, Thursday night was the most exciting night of my life because I knew Friday was coming. You know that thing? Sunday is coming. Well, Friday was coming for me every week. And I remember there was a phrase, and I mentioned this last week, that someone uh, that I read about during that process of exploring the Sabbath before I actually pulled the trigger to introduce that in my own life, that, that the, keeping the Sabbath is, is practicing for eternity. <laughs> and I loved that. And so I treated the Sabbath that way, all those Fridays. It was me practicing for eternity that was resting and delighting in the Lord. And delighting in the Lord means eating a lot of great food. It means taking a long nap and not being ashamed of it. It means reading books uninterrupted without feeling like I got anything pressing in my life, emails that I need to check or phone call I need to return. It means sitting down with my kids and playing a stupid board game that I would rather not play. It means getting my kids together and my wife and going sledding even though I know that that's the last thing that my wife wants to do. But then it was three months ago that something else happened. I read a book called The, the Unrelentless Pursuit of Hurry 
No, unrelentless elimination of hurry, I'm sorry. And then subsequently reading the book that we're going through this month, 24-6, and something else clicked. Here I had realized the importance of instituting this in my life, and I had tangibly experienced the immense benefit of it. My relationship with the Lord was blossoming in a way that I could never imagine. And the cool thing is, is my relationship with other people was, was as well. That my productivity was increasing. Because to take 24 hours where you're doing nothing requires that you schedule the rest of your week to accommodate that. And I realized that I was doing this in my own life, but I wasn't teaching my kids. I wasn't teaching my kids, and I wasn't leading my wife. And so we all sat down together, and probably right now, hopefully not 10 years from now, but right now my kids probably look back at this day as the day that their world stopped. When we told them, we're going to take 24 hours, oh, and Callie, my 14-year-old beautiful daughter, you won't be able to be on your phone that whole time. Now, we're going to, we're going to go through the process. We're going to do Friday, because my wife works on Fridays, so we couldn't do it all day Friday. We're going to do Friday starting at 5.30 p.m., and we're going to turn everything off. And we're going to make this huge dinner and we're going to buy dessert and not feel guilty about it. We're going, to, we're going to buy breakfast in advance so we're not having to worry about cooking it the next morning. And we're just going to rest. We're going to play. We're going to get bored. And guys, this is why we're going to do it. And it has been amazing. My kids, my kids, my 14-year-old, 10-year-old, they know what it means to keep the Sabbath. It's incredible. So we're, we're going through this book, this book 24-6 by Matthew Sleeth. This is one of many books that talks about this subject, but I think that this is the, probably one of the most succinct. And there are several reasons why we're doing it um, this way, and I'll get into those, um, those details here in a little bit. But one thing Matthew Sleeth mentions in this book, and you'll see it on the screen, is that this, something is missing from our lives, and what is missing matters. Something is missing from our lives, and what is missing matters. So what is the evidence that something is missing from our lives? Well, one, one very obvious thing is that we're tired. We're tired. Matthew Sleeth in his book says, in the last 20 years, work is up 15% and leisure is down 30%. The National Safety Council conducted a survey that found 97% of Americans say they have at least one of the leading nine risk factors for fatigue. And that includes working at night or early in the morning, working long 
shifts without regular work breaks, working more than 50 hours each week and during long commutes. And here's the thing, and some of you can attest to this. I know that there's some of you here that are retired. God bless you. We're jealous. It's interesting, so many times when I talk to people who are retired, they tell me that they're just as busy now as they were before they entered into retirement. Seventy-six percent of workers say they feel tired at work. Fifty-three percent feel less productive, and 44 percent have trouble focusing. We're tired. We are just tired. We've come to believe that being busy gives us validation, gives us worth. All you have to do is ask somebody how they're doing, and that conversation is pretty typical how that goes. You ask somebody, hey, how you're doing? Generally speaking, it's something, the response is something to the fact of, yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay, or I'm doing good, and I'm busy. It's really busy. We say that to one another. But if, if, if you were to hear the answer, and the answer was, you know, you know, good. I'm not really busy at all. I, I have plenty of time to rest. I, I'm taking time to read, to play, to grow. Here's the deal. Many of us, maybe we wouldn't want to admit it in this, in this place, but many of us would respond by, one, being jealous, and two, thinking, well, that's not right. That seems a little lazy. There's something ingrained within us that believes worth is tied to whether you are busy or not. So generally, people tend to feel pride. We tend to feel pride by the amount of work that we do, and then we scoff at taking time to rest. We apologize for taking a nap. In other words, we feel, generally, we feel guilty about resting. So what's missing? What is missing? If something is missing, what is it? Well, I believe I would, I would advocate that what's missing from our lives begins by not prioritizing what God prioritized at the very beginning of time, and that is the Sabbath. So what is the Sabbath? What is that word? Well, the word Sabbath, it means cease from working. It couldn't be more simple than that. <clears throat> but first what I want to do is I want to look at, at how Sabbath is referred to in the Old and New Testament. So in the Old Testament, the very first reference of the Sabbath, and this should be familiar to most, if not all of us, is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, after God had spent six amazing days, and we're certainly not going to get into the conversation of whether those were literal days or not. But Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. That's key. We'll get to that here in a minute. Because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. 
So that's the first reference. Well, then the, then the Sabbath is later then added to the Ten Commandments. You know, the Ten Commandments, the, the Ten Commandments that we often fight to remain included in our governmental institutions and schools. In the midst of the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, the longest commandment, Matthew Sleeth talks about that if, if the Ten Commandments were an apple pie, the fourth commandment would be a third of that apple pie. Exodus 20, chapter, or chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. This is what it says. This is the commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So overall, the word Sabbath, that word in different contexts and forms, is used 172 times in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? In the New Testament, the word Sabbath is mentioned 59 times. Now, in comparison, just keep this in mind, that, that if you don't think that that's a large number, other words that we hold in high regard, that we do messages about, or you hear messages about, and t- are taught many times, words like forgive and wisdom are mentioned in the New Testament 32 and 52 times, respectively. The Sabbath is mentioned 59 times. So we got to perk up. we got to be interested by that. But I know that what some of you are thinking. I know what some of you are thinking, because you know what? If someone is caught in adultery, do you know what we don't do? We don't stone them. That's what it says in the Old Testament, in the law that was given to the Israelites. So some of you might be asking or thinking, isn't the law, you know, all those laws from the Old Testament abolished because of the work of Christ on the cross? Well, the answer is yes and no. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, where he makes very clear his relationship with the law. The law that is a little bit more elusive to us today, but keep in mind that the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, that was the law. That's what they referred to, the Israelites the Jews. That was their Bible. And Jesus here is saying in Matthew 5, 17, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. He was, 
He, he was challenged by, by things like the Sabbath and other aspects of the law. And he's saying, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus does two things here. He says, he says first what he came to do. And then he says what he, came, what he did not come to do. So here he's emphasizing that he did not come, he did not come to diminish the authority of God's word or the law. He did not come to say, forget God's authority that you have come to rely on. Don't, don't forget that. Don't disregard that. Instead, Jesus came to fulfill the law in that, and this is key, he came to perfect the embodiment of God's law. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Paul says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Righteousness, that is the pursuit of living right with God. So this means that our relationship with the law, that it should be measured by how Jesus lived it out. If he's the embodiment, if he's the culmination, if he's the fulfillment of the law, then we should take our cue from Jesus in his relationship with the law. It also means that we are no longer held under the law. That because of Christ, we are instead held under Jesus. I mentioned this when we received communion. We have received an atonement for our sins. Meaning that what was necessary before Christ in order for us to be right with God, we would have, we, we, instead of the first Sunday of each month having communion, we would bring Seymour the goat up to the stage and sacrifice it. But we don't have to do that because Christ has once and for all become the atonement for our sins, the sacrifice. And so our view of the law should be held under the microscope of Jesus himself. So what does Jesus think of the Sabbath? In Mark chapter 2, verses 27 through 28, Jesus says this. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is in response to him being challenged about the Sabbath by the Darth Vader of the Bible, the Pharisees. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus is bringing clarity. Again, he's fulfilling the law. He's becoming the embodiment of the law. He's not eradicating it. He's giving clarity to it. Okay. So let's ask the question then, who is the Sabbath, who is the Sabbath made for? Well, this isn't just a Jewish thing. It was made for man. We just saw that. That Sabbath was made for man. So to state that the Sabbath is only for Jews would imply that all the other nine commandments don't apply to non-Jewish people as well. So that means if you're not a Jew, you can murder somebody. 
The Sabbath is God's holy day. In Isaiah chapter 58, verse 13, it says, If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words. And then all believers will observe the Sabbath in the new heaven and the new earth. So on that day when we stand in eternity with God on that new earth, we will be observing the Sabbath, Isaiah 66. It says that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me. So why the Sabbath? I'm going to skip a little bit here because I've let time get away from me, and I apologize for that. But why is the Sabbath important? Well, there's several reasons. One is we too easily forget to take care of ourselves. The commandment about the Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments that begins with the word remember. We forget to take care of ourselves. If you add up 52 days a year, the book mentions this, it comes out to an average of about 11 years. That's 11 years of rest. That's a big deal. Another reason why it's so important is that it's part of God's character. And God's character is revealed in this and that he stopped. God stopped. And if he stopped, then we surely should too. And then another reason why it's important is that to keep the Sabbath is to be holy. So God didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because, it, because he is holy. And that everything God does is holy, everything. So here's a mathematical equation that Matthew Sleeth in his book 24-6 lays out. He says that God is holy and that God rested which means rest is holy. It's just math. So we're going to go on this journey, and so I just want to mention to you how this is going to play out over the course of the month. We're going to take baby steps. If I stood up here on the stage and I said, I said, giving is so important for the Christian life, giving of our resources, our financial resources, and I said that giving a tithe is biblical, and that's 10%, and if you currently are giving 0%, going from 0 to 10%, that's crazy. That's tough. You got to take one step at a time. Well, we got to do that with this too. It's too easy for me to say here that you need to start tomorrow taking 24 hours of your week and commit to rest. We got to build up to that a little bit. So we want to give you some tangible expressions and means to be able to do that. So what I'm suggesting is that by the end of this series that most of you would commit to at least three hours a week where you are taking time to just unplug from everything and to give rest and presence priority. We also, um, we're going to be uh, giving you some tangible things for you to work out over the course of these uh, these weeks. The first is this journal that you were handed as you came into the room. I'm going to put some things on the screen here, and I'm going to ask that they be up for a little bit, but these, um, these are th uh, five 
five headings that I would like you to write on five different pages in your journal. I'm going to give you these headings, a new set of headings every week. And I'm going to ask that at some point during the course of this week, possibly daily for five days, you spend time practicing being present with God, separating yourself from the distractions of this world. What did we sing? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of the world will grow strangely dim. And so on the first page, what I'd ask you to write is write a scripture that brings you peace. Write a scripture that brings you peace. And what is God saying to you? Write a scripture that brings you peace. And what is God saying to you? And then on a separate page, on the next page, I want you to write, Be still. What is God telling you now? Be still. What is God telling you now? And on the next page, I want you to write, what do you feel God is asking you to change? What do you feel God is asking you to change? Then on the fourth page, describe a blessing that happened this week. Describe a blessing that happened this week. And then the last, um, the fifth page, I want you to write list all the needs God is currently meeting. List all the needs that God is currently meeting. And Matthew, I'm going to ask that you would put all five of these on one slide. Could you do that for me right now? And then put them on the screen, and we're going to leave them up during, in between services so that you can reference them. And then a couple of other things. We have family activities. So we have activity bags that are going to be available at the, uh, the kids' area and then also in the commons. Some activity bags that families can do together, taking that time. So if you'd like to grab one of those to do with your kids or grandkids. And there's also a daily family devotional booklet to do at dinners. And then certainly we have our small groups who are going to be meeting. And if you would like to join one and you're not in one, you need to be in one. Talk to me or Pastor Don and we will get you connected. But we have this discussion guide that small groups can go to over this time. So I've kept you way late. Holy cow. This isn't a Pentecostal church. I apologize. Let me pray for us. And I'm excited for what God has in store for us this month. 
Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be together here today. I pray, Lord, that you would lead out in this area and that you would truly open our eyes and our hearts to how it is that we can become people who embrace our limitations, who find rest, and who are able to intentionally be present with you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. I love you all, and I'll see you next week.